This podcast is sponsored by Echelon. Echelon is the affordable way to get the workout equipment, the workout community, and an instructor's motivation right in the comfort of your own home. With Echelon, you can work at any time, day or night, and crush your fitness goals. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, just text GENIUS to 818181. Quick disclaimer, message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. I have uh, Bjorn Lumberg. He's an author of a, a book called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions, Hurts the Poor, and Fails to Fix the Planet. So we're going to talk about climate change. Uh, Bjorn, thanks for coming. Hey, Richard. It's my pleasure. If you would, tell me a bit about your background. How did you uh, get onto this topic? A uh, very convoluted way. So uh, I actually, like I think most people in, in rich countries, I used to be sort of a Greenpeace or I, yeah, I wasn't out in the rubber boat, but I had the posters on my wall and the backpack and the whole whole thing and worried very much about uh, climate change and many other environmental issues. Uh, and I taught statistics at the University of Aarhus, which is the second big uh, university in Denmark. And, and one of the things I continuously told my students was, you know, you think you know a lot of things, but what statistics actually show you is a lot of things are quite opposite of what you think. Uh, and, and so at one point, I read an, uh, an interview with an American economist in Wired magazine, and this guy said, everything or most things that you think you know about environment is wrong. I was totally sure he was just sort of right-wing American economist. And mm. I didn't really bother all that much with it, except he said the one thing that bothered me enormously. He said, go check the data. And so I figured, all right, look, this will be fun. This will be a fun exercise for a lot of my smart students. We'll go through his book, show how wrong he is. And that's really how I got started. So it, it, it started out as an attempt to debunk uh, this guy, he, his name is uh, Julian Simon. Uh, and, you know, he was right wing and he's certainly wrong in some points. Uh, but fundamentally, a lot of what he said, you know, for instance, air pollution in rich countries has come down dramatically. Why? Because we're richer and better can afford to actually protect ourselves. So the simple point is you think you know a lot of things, but actually a lot of the data tells you opposite stories. And you need to know in order to be able to make good judgment. So when you started checking the data, as, as you say, what, what was the first thing you checked and what was the first crack in the facade of what you thought? So that that was a lot of these things. You know, you think that air pollution is getting worse. No, it's getting better. I have this wonderful graph that I later did in, in, in my book, uh, which was called The Skeptical Environmentalist back from uh, early 2001. So I have data for air pollution in London back from uh, medieval times. And, you know, most people think air pollution is a relatively new phenomenon. It's something that's getting worse and worse. We're sort of out of control of the diesel cars, all that stuff. Uh, And it definitely is a big problem. 
But it's actually a problem that has been diminishing at least for 100 years in most of the rich world. Actually, London today is cleaner than it's ever been since medieval times. Why? Because remember back in medieval times, we, we used terrible stuff to keep warm and cook inside. We'd you know, use dung or cardboard or wood or coal. And of course, much of the industrial revolution was just powered in dirty, dirty coal. So outside in around 1900 was terribly polluted, much more polluted than even Beijing or, or New Delhi is today. The beauty of this point is that we have seen a dramatic improvement because we've gotten richer and because we've become better at dealing with environmental problems. It does not mean that there's no problem. Remember, uh, uh, air pollution in rich countries still kill hundreds of thousands of people every year. We can still do even better, but we need to know things are not actually getting worse. They're getting better. Yeah, there's pretty much zero I've heard from any official that, you know, we've done this and that's a good thing, but we should also do this. It's, it's just, we're all going to die in the next X number of years. Yes. It's a crisis. It's a, it, you know, there's like zero fact behind it. It's just, I don't know. That's, that's what I'm there, there's a surprising sense in which we don't sort of stop every once in a while, take stock and realize we've actually done pretty damn well. Uh, you know, remember one of, one of the things which is obvious when you think about it, but which I think remain amazingly underappreciated is the fact that we live longer and longer. Remember, the average life expectancy on planet Earth around 1900 was about 30 years of age. Today, that number is around 70. We have literally got more than two lifetimes, you and I and everybody else on this planet, compared to what we had in 1900. That's an amazing achievement. And, and a lot of people will tell you, oh, but that's just because uh, you know, uh, infants survive more. And that's part of their you know, uh, reason. And of course, I would assume that that's also a really, really good thing. But it's also because everybody else, all other age groups live longer. It's actually such that even in rich countries, the U.S. is a little bit of an outlier in this, uh, in this respect because of the opiate uh, crisis. But even in the rich world, we see constant increases in life expectancy. And the basic point here is, if you have knowledge, if you have wealth, if you have resilience, you are much better able to tackle most problems. This does not mean we can't do even better. It doesn't mean we shouldn't make sure that people live even longer and even better lives. But we're actually on the right track, not the wrong track. So you observed through air pollution that we're doing, quote unquote, a lot better. What are some of the aspects of um, you know, humanity's impact on the planet that we're doing really well in or better? And which ones are we still not doing well in at all? So I think I think it's important to, first of all, you know, climate has become such a divisive issue and such a, a trigger issue in many ways. We just need to you know, state up front. Look, global warming is real. It's man-made. It is a problem. But it's very often dramatically exaggerated. And that doesn't actually make for good decision making. If you think that it's the end of the world and it's actually a problem, you're likely to focus too much and probably also really bad policies on dealing with this. So with that said, if you, for instance, look on many of the things that you hear about, you get very poorly informed about climate change. So you know, take some of the most obvious things that as temperatures rise, which they do, and again, global warming is real, temperatures rise around the world, 
Overall, that's a bad thing, simply because, remember, all of our societies have been built to the historical context of where we are. So, you know, if you're in, uh, if you're in Boston, you're, you're, you have a lot of building stock that's used to relative cold. If you're in Atlanta or in Miami, you're used to it being much hotter. Both of these places are well adjusted to what the temperature was like 100 years ago. But as temperatures rise, or if they've gone down, these building stocks would both be a little bit out of sync. That's the main reason why global warming is a problem. But when you then look at what happens when people see more higher temperatures, you get more heat waves and you get more people dying from heat. That's absolutely true. This is what we saw in the, you know, the uh, heat dome in, in early spring in 2021, uh, which got an enormous amount of attention. About 730 people died from this. And that was a terrible outcome. But what we don't normally hear is the fact that a lot of people also die from cold. Remember, while heat is deadly, cold is also deadly. And it turns out if you, uh, for instance, use the Global Burden of Disease, which is the biggest database uh, for all that afflicts mankind, it's supported by the Gates Foundation. What they find is in the US and Canada, every year about 2,500 people die from heat, but about 130,000 people die from cold. Why are we only talking about the 2,500 people dying from heat? And that's definitely terrible but neglecting the fact that 130,000 people die from cold. Moreover, why are we neglecting the fact that as temperatures rise, and we know this globally, as temperatures rise, we have seen more heat waves and hence more people die from heat. That's absolutely true. About 116,000 more people die every year globally because of heat. And that's a real problem. But at the same time, because many more people, almost everywhere on the planet die from cold, it turns out that about 283,000 fewer people die from cold. That is, every year, about 166,000 people die less from heat and cold because of increased temperatures. Again, this does not mean that global warming is not a problem. It does not mean that in the long run, this will not switch around. It'll probably get much closer to zero and probably at some point uh, turn negative. But it does mean that right now, global warming on this particular issue, heat and cold deaths, actually turns out to be a net benefit. And most people feel, you know, it feels like people's heads explode when you point this out, but it's not, you know, it's not something that I've concocted. It's not something that, you know, some unserious blog posts have said. It's the world's leading medical journal, The Lancet, that figured this out last year. It was the first survey that actually did the study of how many people die from heat and cold and because of temperature rises over the last 20 years. And the net outcome was that more people survive than extra people die from heat. That is a phenomenal outcome, and you haven't heard it because it doesn't fit the narrative. Yeah, another something I've been very curious about is uh, electric cars versus gas-powered cars or vehicles. Has anyone, to your knowledge, created a real energy balance with all the inputs, all the externalities, and looked at the two, for example, and seen over time you know, will one consume more resources or different resources or less resources, et cetera? Yes. So a lot of people have spent a lot of time doing this. Uh, You're very often being told this idea that, you know, electric cars are the future and they're amazing. And they're basically, uh, they have zero emissions. That's true 
when they're being driven. But of course, most of these cars are produced, especially they're very heavy and energy intensive batteries with fossil fuels. And they're often very, very often also recharged with at least partial fossil fuel energy. Now, it still turns out that electric cars emit less CO2 overall if you just drive them a reasonably long uh, distance. Remember, a lot of the data seems to indicate that most people actually buy an electric car as a second virtue signaling car. Uh, and, and so there's a lot of evidence that seems to indicate that Americans at least use their electric car a lot less. And that's a problem because if you mostly have it in the garage, because it has so much energy already stored in its, uh, in its batteries, there's actually a real risk that you will end up not uh, reducing your total emissions. But you know, let's just put that aside for a second. Electric cars will emit less, but not this earth-shattering less than, than many people uh, believe. Right now, the International Energy Agency estimates that on, on global averages for electricity, it's probably such that an electric car uh, will emit about 10 tons of CO2, or about a third less than what a gasoline-driven car will do over its lifetime. So it's somewhat better, but it's not this magic bullet. And there's one more one more thing you need to remember. Uh, so this is a new study from Nature that showed while electric cars are better on not emitting as much CO2, which is the cause of, of climate change, they are also much more heavy because batteries are incredibly heavy. So on average, they're probably 500, 700 pounds heavier. That matters because when cars are involved in accidents, heavier cars tend to kill more of the people in the other cars that are involved in the accident or the, uh, the pedestrian that's involved. What that means is when you actually look at the benefit of reduced CO2 and the disbenefit of heavier cars, it turns out that for many countries and probably in more, most realistic settings, the heavier bad outcome, the more kill people, outweigh the reduced CO2 emissions. We never hear this conversation. And again, it doesn't mean that there are not good ways to make sure that electric cars can be part of the solution. But the way that the conversation is only about how electric cars are amazing and we should all switch to them right now, when they only cut about a third of the emissions, certainly around this time, and also there's no conversation about the fact that they'll probably end up killing more people in traffic, that's not a full conversation. I figured with electric cars, again, they still have to be recharged and the electricity is probably produced from, you know, mainly traditional sources. So I have thought you're merely repl replacing, you know, a lot of multiple point emitters with one big emitter and that and, electricity and, and, again gets produced and goes in the cars. But um, and there, you're there, still there's part, yeah, there's part of that. Uh, but what you have to remember is that even over the U.S., there's a huge difference between you know how much Wyoming uh, gets of it, it, its electricity from uh, from coal, which is almost all of it, uh, to some states that have enormous amounts of, of of hydro or other very clean outlets. And because electric cars are also more efficient in their use of energy, they will typically reduce. CO2 emissions, but not nearly as much as what most people think. And one of the other things, of course, to remember is that they will possibly decrease air pollution, which a lot of people like to say, but it actually turns out that if there's just some 
coal fire involved, it could very easily backfire. It turns out that you know uh, they did a study for China, which obviously is incredibly dependent on on coal as uh, as a source of electricity. If you replaced a million cars in Shanghai with electric cars, you'd imagine that the air would become cleaner. And sure, the electric cars wouldn't be emitting any CO two, but or or uh, particulate matter for that matter. But because you'd have to place a coal-fired power plant, you know, sort of, say, 40 miles away, it would actually pollute so much more that you would see many more people dying in Shanghai, not fewer people dying from air pollution. Again, this, this simply indicates that this, this way that we've been told and sold the story about climate change is this one-dimensional, almost Disney-like good and bad guys, uh, electric cars, good coal-fired power plants, bad, is, is just not a, a good representation of reality. Sometimes climate-smart solutions are better. Sometimes they're bad in a number of different ways, also just that they're incredibly expensive, as we're seeing you know, with electric cars. People mostly buy them around the world when governments give you uh, in the order of $10,000 uh, in subsidies. And that's, of course, not a sustainable way to get most people to buy an electric car. I mean, going forward... It seems like several nations, again, are putting emission limits on cars. And at some point they're saying, well, pretty soon we want all electric. That's it. No exceptions. How do you think policy is going to run headlong into uh, reality in those countries? <laughs> well, when- it certainly is going to have a big problem when you get to those targets. Remember, uh, you know, Obama promised us we'd have a million electric cars way before uh, we actually had uh, Merkel in Germany did the same thing. A lot of these targets have come and gone and you haven't actually uh, seen them adhere to. And that's, of course, because people don't want to spend an enormous amount of money on climate change. So, you know, in the U.S., we typically, you you ask people, they say they care about climate change. Then you ask them how much you're willing to pay. And, you know, a majority is willing to pay some, but not all that much, maybe $100 a year or something. But then you have the solutions that are very often in the thousands or tens of thousands of dollars per, uh, per person per year. And of course, people are just not going to vote for politicians that put on those costs. If 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 politicians tell you you can't have anything but an electric car and an electric car is still much more costly and or much less convenient for you, you're going to feel incredible resentment. So there's one period paper out there that estimate what are the uh, willingness to buy and interest in buying different cars uh, by 2030. And obviously that's you know fraught with all kinds of problems and predicting how will people be thinking and be uh, prioritizing by 2030. But the outcome of this particular model and many others uh, show that about 80% will still want to have a fossil fuel or at least partially partially fossil fuel driven car. If you tell people you can't have that, you're basically uh, challenging 80% of the electorate. That's probably not going to go down well. The things are put forth that we're told we need to help save the planet, but there's no true cost benefit analysis allowed. And it's shouted down or just not even talked about. That's why I said like with electric cars, you know, what are all the inputs, you know, mining the rare earth elements to make the batteries. Um, up front, it seems like there's a lot more that goes into an electric car than a gas car. But I would think over time, you know, the gas car would end up emitting more. But what's what's that quote unquote payback period or that period where they, they kind of become equal in terms of inputs? 
Yeah. So that's a that's about uh, yeah. If you do it roughly, and it depends again on how much battery there is in there and all that stuff. Uh, but it's you know somewhere between thirty thousand and sixty thousand miles you have to drive your electric car before it becomes better than the gasoline-driven car. That's why you know if you just buy one uh, for for sort of the, the short shopping trips and you have uh, the SUV for the long family trips instead, you're actually doing really, really badly because both of these cars will then emit a lot of CO2. Also the electric cars, but of course the people who drive it around have both gotten what $10,000 or so uh, in subsidies and they will feel incredibly virtuous, but we need to know the reality. And this is that any realistic change in electric cars is going to have a minuscule effect, certainly over the next uh, decade or so. Look, I think, you know, if you've ever tried to travel a, a Tesla, they're wonderful cars. Uh, I can imagine a lot of people are going to want uh, to have one once they're much cheaper. They will definitely be part of the solution. They're definitely not the whole solution. But what's most important is they're only a tiny part of the full solution. And the way that we sort of emphasize these small token, almost token uh, emphasis things like electric cars as solutions to climate change will only make it much harder for us to solve climate change and at the same time mean that we'll end up spending lots and lots of money on essentially subsidizing rich people to get a second car where they can feel virtuous. Considering other areas, you know, habitat loss, um, extinction of species, et cetera, I had heard, uh, I guess, the former head of Greenpeace, again, giving numbers that were in support of that uh, that all is lost. What, what have you seen in those two areas? So uh, again, species decline is definitely an issue. Uh, so we are extincting uh, uh, animals at a much faster than uh, natural rate. Uh, you know, the standard assumption is that in the hundreds or even thousands of times. But there are two important things to recognize. One is that this is mostly a consequence of poverty. You know, if you're poor, you cut down rainforest to uh, transform it into uh, uh, agricultural land where you can uh, grow, grow often meager uh, crops, but at least keep your kids alive. And that does not happen in most rich countries that are actually reforesting because most people think that more forest is a nice thing if you don't have to live uh, uh, you know, if you don't have to sort of compete with, uh, with the forest, uh, if you work in the city, so on. The second thing is that climate change is actually one of the smallest parts, the biodiversity issue. Uh, and, and again, even World Wildlife Fund, many others will tell you that it, this is mostly about, as I said, poverty. It's about uh, encroachment from, uh, from uh, invasive species. Uh, it's about the fact that a lot of uh, agriculture is very ineffective. Organic food is one of them. And the fact that we build up a lot of land uh, and sometimes unnecessarily. Those are the important factors that drive biodiversity problems. And again, trying to make this into a climate problem actually misses most of the important ways that you could make biodiversity loss less. It is by making sure that you have higher productivity in agriculture, so most people don't have to cut down more forest. It's about uh, tackling poverty, especially in the developing world, to make sure that people get rich. And so instead of uh, cutting down rainforest, they will vote for parties that want more rainforest. I've been working too hard and not working out enough. I wanted to get in shape, but I don't have time to get to the gym. Echelon brings the gym home to me. 
So right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS, G-E-N-I-U-S, to 818181 to get up to $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181, and message and data rates may apply. See terms for details. Again, in terms of uh, habitat destruction, and again, species going extinct, uh, are you aware of, of what the current numbers are? Is it uh, rapidly accelerating? Is it slowing down? Uh, you know, are we are we close yeah. to a, a point where it's a problem for certain species, or is that kind of a unfortunately uh, maybe not as well known area of, of climate change? This is this is one of those uh, areas where almost all of this is driven by models because we honestly don't know. If you look at the total number of species that have died out that we've documented, it's less than a thousand species. Over the last 500 years, we have what at least uh, about a, almost 2 million documented. We probably believe there's somewhere between 10 and, and 80 million uh, species in total. So this, the simple answer is no, we cannot show this. But of course, just because we can't document that a species used to be here and now we can't find it anymore doesn't mean that there's no problem. But again, you need to get a sense of proportion. Uh, what we're talking about here is to the extent of over the next 50 years, we will possibly lose uh, somewhere around 0.2% more species. And this is because species are very resilient and there's an enormous number of them. And most species are, uh, you know, the, by far the biggest single species is beetles. And, and so the reality here is that yes, we are going to lose some, all other things equal, we would rather not lose as much. And we should certainly be doing some of the things I was talking about with uh, stop invasive species, make sure that you have more efficiency in agriculture and that you get people out of poverty. But you should also recognize that for most of humanity, there's just much, much more important issues. And the real solution is not to try and stop poor countries to cut down their forests now, but to get them out of poverty so they don't want to cut down their forests. So again, we tend to focus on the wrong solutions and the very inefficient solutions, the solutions that are going to be very expensive, but actually deliver very little of the results that we want. And again, that's not good for anyone. It's not good for the policy decision. It's not good for taxpayers. And it's not good for solving the problems. Yeah, it makes sense. Last year in Texas, uh, there was a, uh, they called it Snowmageddon. Yeah. Temperatures went down to literally 10 degrees, 10 to 20 degrees for a week. And power went out, you know, in Austin and uh, surrounding cities. And I don't know how many people froze to death, but I can't imagine that it was, there was none. There must have been dozens and dozens of people that froze to death because it was, it was terrible. No word of anything, you know, it's just passed by. From what I have heard, it's, it's because Texas's electric grid, so 20 some odd percent of it was wind and solar, and there was no extra provision for wind and solar. So when, you know, it snowed here, the solar was covered, the wind turbines were frozen, and we didn't have enough. And we had rolling blackouts, which just turned to be week-long blackouts. So and you're do definitely you expect right. to see more of this? Or, you know, what, yeah. what does that example tell you of what's happened here, and what do you expect from that? Yeah, so there's, there was definitely a lot of deaths. So uh, the official number is uh, about 120, as I re recall. Uh, so yes, it did have a huge impact, especially high numbers for the U.S., 
the the whole conversation about to what extent this was caused by by uh, renewables versus gas my understanding is that it was a little bit of cost by all of the above uh, and it was especially the fact that uh, that texas uh, wasn't and still isn't uh, weatherized. Uh, so th- there's basically no insurance also that your gas fire power plants can run well uh, when the temperature really dips. And so so I think the it's it's hard to come up with this, oh, it was just the wind turbines or uh, that it was just the nuclear power plants or the gas plants or anything. But it shows you that we really, really need energy and that it is important that energy is stable in supply. Now, what is happening, for instance, in Europe is that you're seeing because uh, we didn't have as much wind as we expected for the last nine months. We're basically out of gas. Gas is the one that backs up uh, wind when it's not blowing. And that's why we're now paying enormous prices for keeping some of the lights on. That is a terrible outcome. That's, of course, going to get much worse as we become much more dependent on weather uh, unreliable or weather uh, uh, dependent energy sources like solar and wind. Again, the only way you can do that is by making sure you have lots of gas. It's not, as most people think, batteries. Batteries globally uh, can cover uh, about a minute and a half of uh, of energy, of, of global energy consumption. So this is really a very, very small player. That is not what uh, solves the problem. It is gas. And of course, that also shows you the idea that we're going to get anytime soon uh, to 100% solar and wind is, is ludicrous. No, we're not, unless we get firm or what's typically known as, as base load power. We need that. And they didn't have that in sufficient amounts in, in Texas. And that's a real bad outcome. A lot of this is probably because it was not weatherized. But it shows you in general that what you need to have a well-functioning uh, uh, economic system is to actually have a lot of base load or a lot of firm power. That comes from nuclear. That comes from fossil fuels. And we need to find a smarter way if we're going to see the green transition actually succeeding. And we've not done that so far. What we're basically doing is uh, we're throwing lots of money in to get you know, a lot of feel-good wind and solar, and it does a little bit, but not very much because you're basically dependent on having the whole fossil fuel infrastructure to back you up when the sun is not shining and the wind is not blowing. Uh, remember, we have good statistics, for instance, for Germany. Every year, about five days, you have five days where the wind is almost not blowing at all. What are you going to do? You can't have batteries for five days. Right now, Germany has batteries for about two minutes. So again, what you end up having is a full complement of fossil fuel backup. Now, it still reduces your CO2 emissions, but it ends up costing you a lot. And I think that's the real lesson from uh, from Texas and from many of these other disasters, that what you're ending up doing is that you're making people pay a lot more with very little climate benefit. That is obviously not going to uh, lead in the long term to more goodwill towards climate solution. And at the same time, you're also exaggerating and you know sensationalizing this. I don't know if you saw or remember uh, John Kerry, but many others also came out and said the extreme cold in Texas was because of global warming. Now, there's, there's a, a tenuous argument that you could potentially make uh, the, the case. This is certainly not uh, settled science by any means. But what you obviously have to say in general is, no, 
Global warming, not surprisingly, makes things warmer. On average, that's what happens. Colder, and you see this in all climate models, you get less coal. You don't get more coal. And, and when everything gets turned into this, it's global warming's fault. You're not actually well-informed, but you're just being informed of something that smacks a little more of a religion or a cult. And, and of course, again, that's not helpful for making good policy decisions. Well, the wording has changed. It's not really global warming anymore. Now it's climate change. So anything that happens, anytime there's a storm, oh, it's climate change. Anytime it's cold, mm-hmm. climate change. Anytime it's hot, climate change. Anytime. I mean, so the, that's what I've seen over the past maybe 10, 15 years at least. It used to be global warming, but the parlance seems to have, have changed. I don't know if you observe that. You're more interested than I am, but Absolutely. We should just say that climate change was actually the original uh, uh, frame. I think global warming was just more sort of straightforward. What is happening now is, for instance, The Guardian and many other papers have started talking about the climate crisis or the climate apocalypse or uh, uh, global heating and, you know, things that sound very, very scary. And, and, you know, The Guardian is public policy, uh, it's their policy, but many other papers uh, use the idea of, of existential risk and so on. And that's just not what the science tell us. Uh, global warming is a problem, as I mentioned before. It's, it's inconvenient when temperatures move away from their historical average because it makes buildings and many other things less well suited for where you are now. That's a real problem. It will have some costs. But if you're rich, you deal with it. And of course, if you're poor, you have many other and much more important problems like the fact that your kids don't have enough food or they'll die from malaria or tuberculosis. So again, the point here is to recognize that climate change is a problem, but it's by no means an existential problem. So just to give you a very simple way of, of, of looking at this, the UN Climate Panel estimate that Uh, towards the end of the century, the total cost of global warming will be equivalent to a loss of somewhere between three and four percent of GDP. Uh, Remember, most of the loss is not actually going to be in GDP. This is an equivalence. Uh, You'll be just as bad off as if you had experienced a a GDP loss of three to four percent. That's not nothing. But the standard UN scenario estimate that by the end of the century, each person on the planet will be about 450% as rich as he or she is today. So instead of being 450% as rich, you will only, and that's an inverted commas, you'll only be 434% as rich. Yes, it's a problem. I'd much rather be in a world where we're 450% as rich than uh, one where we're just 434% as rich, but it's not the end of the world. And we need to be able to distinguish it's a problem from it's the end of the world. And most of the rhetoric around climate change doesn't. And of course, the impact is, if you think this is the end of the world, you're willing to spend everything. You're willing to throw everything at this problem. But in reality, it's one of the many problems we need to tackle over the 21st century. And if we focus too much on climate change, we'll end up focusing way too little on all the other problems that are also important to tackle. Yeah, it seems like uh, there are trade-offs with everything in life, everything. Yes. And those trade-offs are not being considered. Like, you know, I've used a low-flush toilet. you got to flush it three, three or four times. What's the point? <laughs> you know, a low-flow shower. you get got to shower for three times as long. So it, it just seems like no one looks at the trade-offs and then says, all right, based on logic and real numbers, we should or we shouldn't do this. It's just, ah, we're all going to mm-hmm. die type stuff. And, and again, so so I've spent a lot of time with some of the world's 
best economists, best climate economists. So we did this for about uh, with 27 of the world's top climate economists and three Nobel laureates. We looked at where can you spend a dollar and actually do the most good for climate. And what they found was the current approaches are terrible. We spend a lot of money and we actually achieve almost nothing. What we should be doing and the thing that we should be focusing on is innovation. Remember almost everything we've done in the past, almost all of the problems that we've had in the past are problems that we've solved through innovation. If you think back to the 1970s, uh, you know, uh, people were incredibly worried that there wouldn't be enough food for the world uh, and most people would end up starving. It turned out to be wrong. Why? Not because we kept saying, well, I'm sorry, everybody in the rich world will have to eat a little less and then we'll send all the food to the world's poor. Obviously, not only would we probably not be able to get most people to buy into that, but we certainly wouldn't be able to actually achieve this and it wouldn't have been a long-term solution. The solution that actually did work was the green revolution. We developed new varieties of, of wheat and maize and many others that grow much more on every acre of soil and hence produce much more food. That's why India has gone from you know, being a basket case in the 1970s to actually being the world's leading rice exporter because they got much better agricultural technology. So the simple point is you don't solve problems by asking everyone, I'm sorry, could you eat a little less and then we'll send it to the third world? You do it through technology. We will have to do the same thing with climate change. Right now, all of the solutions seem to be, I'm sorry, could you drive a little less? Could you fly a little less? Could you please eat a little less meat? And could you please stop with the car thing and all that stuff? And that's all very well intended, but of course you can actually not push people to live actively worse lives. So most people are just going to say, no, I'm not going to do that. What you need to come up with is a much better, cheaper, and cleaner energy technology. Let me just give you one example. Uh, right now, nuclear power, so fission energy, uh, is typically very, very expensive to build. Uh, and that's why uh, nuclear power is not taking over the world right now. It's very, very low CO2 emissions, but it's incredibly expensive. If we could innovate the price of fourth generation nuclear down below fossil fuels, everyone would switch. This is what Bill Gates is spending his money on, investing in these new uh, technologies that potentially could make nuclear not only much safer, but incredibly cheap. Now, remember, we've been told this a lot of times before that, oh, it'll be too cheap to meter and all that stuff. So we should you know, wait and see if this happens. It could be a ton of other ways that we can envision innovation, bring the price of green energy down below fossil fuels. But instead of trying to tell everyone, I'm sorry, you have to do without, which remember, that was actually what we just did in, in the COVID crisis. We locked down everything and people were not happy. Most people are not thinking, yes, I'd love to go back to that world and do much more of it. The way to do this is through innovation. And so when we're talking about this, it's the end of the world and we've all got to stop using our private cars. It will not only it's not only false, but it's also not helping because you can't get most people to vote for it. What you do need is much cheaper, much more effective investment in green energy R&D to make sure that the future green energy technologies become so cheap. Everyone, not just rich, well-meaning Americans and Europeans, but also the Chinese, the Indians, the Africans, everybody else will want to actually buy. Yeah, I agree. Um, 
you know, it's funny if, if the politicians are so worried about climate change, how much of, you know, a given nation's budget is spent on green energy research and why isn't there a worldwide consortium funded with trillions or hundreds of billions, you know, with this sole purpose? Where is it? Yeah. And, and unfortunately, the argument instead becomes, well, if we make a lot of solar panels, uh, you know, through subsidies, or if we uh, force a lot of extra wind turbines to go up, we will implicitly spend more money on research and development. And that's true. But it's a very, very inefficient way to do it. You know, if you spend $100 billion on more wind turbines, maybe $6 billion will go to more innovation. But if it was innovation you want, you should have spent the whole $100 billion in innovation and gotten $100 billion of innovation instead of getting $94 billion of stuff you already know is inefficient and then $6 billion in innovation. You know, it's not rocket science, but right now, because we're scared, because we have a very politicized conversation about climate change, we have very inefficient and, quite frankly, piss poor, I'm not sure you can say this in the, in the, uh, in the podcast, but you know, very inefficient uh, policy solutions to climate change that are very costly and that eventually will lead people to say, I'm not going to vote for these people, uh, people who keep proposing that. What we need to do is to get cheaper and much more effective policies to tackle climate change. It's a real problem, not the end of the world. And this real problem will solve, as we've solved with all other problems that mankind has faced, through innovation, not by telling people they have to do with less. What does it look like for you when you, uh, you know, you speak to other climate scientists or you navigate this, you know, this area? I know you'll probably laugh, but I mean, you, it is very politicized. Do you get attacked often? And what are some of the main arguments that people, you know, scream at you about when you speak to them? Speak reasonably often uh, with many of these these people, and, and certainly my personal understanding is that. Most of my opponents are very, very well-intentioned. They really care about the world. They really believe that the world is about to end. And obviously, it feels incredibly frustrating to them that the whole world not just you know, rushing towards their viewpoint and just spending everything to tackle global warming. And, and that is also reflected in the way that they think about me. Why are you not just incredibly worried and saying we should spend all of our money and, and just buy solar panels all the way through? And, and, and you know, I, I think the fundamental problem here is it is a whole belief set that is so intertwined that you really have to start, you know, peeling it apart. And that's what I tried to do in my book uh, and what we've tried to do in this conversation and podcast, that you need to say, look, there's a lot of things that you think are true, but that are not actually true. So you think that more and more people die from weather-related uh, disasters. No, actually, over the last 100 years, data shows that while global population is quadruple, the number of people dying from weather-related disasters has declined by almost 99%. Why? Because we're much richer, we're much more resilient. Well, but damages are increasing. You know, you see all these hurricanes, you see tornadoes, you see all these damages, surely they're increasing. Well, actually, if you measure it in percent of GDP, which is obviously what you need to do, because if there are more houses or they're more valuable, the same storm will create more damage. Uh, if you measure it in percent of GDP, and that's and also what the UN tells us to do, it turns out that that's declining, not increasing uh, since 1990. 
uh, globally. Why? Again, because we're smart species. We know how to deal with these issues. There are lots of these things, and you know, we could take another two or three podcasts to go through all that data. But this is not what you see in the current media. You see one catastrophe after another, but you don't hear the context. So what we talked about earlier, uh, you hear about the 700 people died in the heat dome, but you don't hear about all the other people that died from heat-related deaths. And you certainly don't hear about the many, many more people that die from cold every year. And you especially don't hear about the fact that while more people die from heat, many more people don't die from cold. And on and on and on. And likewise, you constantly hear, well, solar panels are going to fix the whole thing. Electric cars are going to fix the whole thing. But the honest answer is no, they're mostly going to be very expensive ways of achieving very little. And so they need to focus on much more boring, if you will, solutions like focus on green energy research and development. So you ask me, what do most most of these people criticize me for? Fundamentally, they criticize me for not buying into the whole cult or religion or understanding the standard story the standard narrative of climate change. And then they'll say, but there was this big disaster. And I'm saying, well, but here's a graph of all the disasters. Here's a graph of the total amount of cost. And here is the percent of damage damages uh, in relation to GDP over the last 30 years. And it's actually going down, not up. And, and their, their sense is just incredulity because that's not what you hear from the media. And, and, and you know, honestly, I'm not sure how we're going to get out of this rut because we have gotten to a point where people are so concerned, so assured that not only global warming is a real problem, which they are right about, but that it's almost the end of the world, which they're fundamentally wrong about, that this becomes yeah. a very hard conversation to have. Yeah, I've, I've interviewed now, not too many yet, but uh, several people that work on climate-related issues. And from what I'm hearing, it seems like this is what worries me. The modelers, the people that are, you know, are modeling glaciers or modeling sea rise or modeling whatever. When I ask them about not only trade-offs, but um, you know, what is their model? What, what's it based on? They all seem to say like, well, the IPCC says that ocean levels are rising. So I'm just trying to model that. Or the IPCC says glaciers are retreating. So I'm just trying to model that. So it seems like a lot of modelers are starting with the assumption that they've been told that XYZ is happening. And how can you have an accurate model if you start out with an assumption like like that and not just look at reality and see maybe, well, maybe things are getting better. Maybe things aren't mm. going in this one direction. What are your thoughts? So, so, so my sense of that question is actually, you know, certainly my, my sense is most of these models are really very conscientious people. They're trying to do the best they can. Uh, it's not my sense that most people just start out, off with basically making the assumption that they're trying to prove. But sure, they they take some of the uh, the evidence from granted. And that's that, that's the only way really you can do science. So I don't blame them. And I understand what they're doing. I think, and again, this is because I come from an economist point of view, I think most of the problems that come up is the almost entire lack of focus of human ingenuity and adaptation. So for instance, when you take sea level rise, uh, and my understanding, and again, I'm not a climate modeler, but you know, I've talked to a lot of these people, I've read the UN climate panel reports. My understanding is absolutely temperatures, as temperatures rise, 
you're going to see water just like everything else. It gets warmer, it expands when it gets warmer. That's where you're going to see mostly uh, rising sea levels. That is all other things going to be a problem. You know, it's harder to have uh, one, two, three feet of extra sea level than not having it. But what almost all of these modelers forget is that we have handled this in the past when we had much less technology, when we were much poorer, incredibly easily. So over the last 150 years, sea levels probably rose about a a foot. Yet if you ask most people what happened over the last 150 years, you know, they'll mention the world wars and the innovation of penicillin and, and the information technology revolution and many other things, but they certainly won't be saying, oh, and sea levels rose for a foot, right? It's just something we fixed. And it was something we fixed incredibly cheaply. So, you know, the Netherlands is probably the best example. It's a country where, what, 40% of its exterior, of its surface is below sea level. And they live fine. It doesn't feel like you're confined uh, by by dikes, although you are uh, when you visit, because they're far away from, mostly far away from where you are. It is a country that's absolutely beautiful and livable. And it's one that I think many people would want to live in. The point here is to recognize that if you just model, all right, sea levels rise three feet, that means 187 million people are going to get flooded because that's the number of people that are within three feet of of the sea level currently. That's just silly because that assumes that nobody does anything in the next 80 years. They just stand around and you know, eventually drown in, in this uh, slowly rising water. Of course, that's not actually how humans behave. We know from Holland and many other places that it's incredibly cheap to build extended sea defenses. And hence, the models actually show at very low cost, we will have fewer people being flooded every year compared to how many people are flooded now, despite the fact that we'll have much higher sea level rise and we will have much richer and more people on the planet. But that's because we're richer and much better able also by the end of the century. It turns out that overall, the damages will be much smaller in percent of GDP than what they are today. Now, had we not had global warming, they would have been even smaller. But that tells you something very different. Climate change is not a problem that makes everything worse. It's not a problem that takes the world and make it into a terrible and catastrophic outcome. Climate change is a problem that makes progress go slightly slower. So yes, we'll still be much better off in 2100, but slightly less much better off by the end of the century. Yeah, that's a problem, no not the end of the, the end of humanity. And that's the really hard conversation that I think is incredibly hard to get across in just a, a, a few sentences. And that's, of course, why we need a podcast like this instead of just having, uh, you know, a, a, a few choice statements. Bjorn, uh, one of the last questions, what are two scenarios that you see for two possible futures? And I don't know the time horizon is best to ask you, 20 years, 50 years, but what are, again, based on what's going on now, what you see, what are two possible future scenarios based on what people are doing and will do? So, so if history has taught us anything, and if you look at the UN climate panel scenarios, all futures are going to be much, much better. We, we, we have a tendency to forget 
because we constantly hear about all the problems. We have a problem of remembering that we're much better educated. We live much longer. We have much less disease. uh, We have much higher incomes. We're much better able to travel. Almost all things are better and will likely be even better by the end of the century. So both of these scenarios that I'm going to outline will be scenarios that will tell you your kids and their kids will live much, much better lives. This actually goes against what many people believe, but it's just simply, it's pretty much baked into all of the scenarios that we look at. With that said, I think there's a choice for us to make a world where we consciously make the future for our kids and grandkids much better, and one where we end up worrying a lot about not false problems, but smaller problems where we pick bad solutions that are incredibly ineffective and end up making the world a lot less better by, say, the end of the century. I think that's really the outcome. Are we going to make a world that's much better or one that's only somewhat better because we do dumb choices? And I think there's a real risk that we're doing dumb choices right now because we focus so much on problems where we actually can do fairly little at very high cost. And then we also pick really bad solutions. Climate change is one of those examples. So we end up spending billions on subsidizing electric cars and and solar panels and wind turbines when the real answer was in research and development. And then we forget all the other issues that are much, much more important. So this would be the problem of moms and small kids dying in childbirth. It would be the problem of tuberculosis. Uh, If you look apart from COVID, the world's leading uh, infectious disease killer. It's a question of not having enough free trade. It's a question of all these individual things, you know, for instance, uh, uh, smart governments in much of the developing world where we could have e-government and where we could have uh, a better procurement. Procurement, again, uh, makes up about uh, most of the corruption that we have in the world. Violence against children and women. Again, these are huge issues that we don't talk very much about, where we have much, much smarter, cheaper, and more easily available uh, uh, solutions. We don't focus on them because the mainstream focuses almost exclusively on the problem of climate change. Climate change is a problem. We're smart species. We can certainly walk and chew gum, and we can also focus on climate change. But we should focus on so many other things as well and remember to spend our resources better there. So the short answer to your question is the world is going to be a lot better in the future. But our choice is, do we want to make sure it's a lot, lot better? Or are we going to hinder some of that lot and just make it better? Well, very good, Bjorn. It was great talking to you. Uh, where can people find out more about your work? And well, you know, what's the name of your book and where can people get it? Thank you very much, Richard. No, it was great to talk to you. So the best way is probably just to follow me on Twitter or Facebook. Uh, Twitter is Bjorn Lomborg. Facebook is also Bjorn Lomborg. And I, I think a lot of people will find my, my new book interesting. It's called False Alarm. And honestly, I'm sorry, I have to get up and, and get the uh, subtitle and get the book, actually. Uh, but sure. I had a long fight with my publisher because it really tells you the whole story of the book. It's called False Alarm, How Climate Change Panic Costs Us Trillions hurts the poor, and fails to fix the planet. So it's really a a plea for making smarter climate policy based on real assumptions on what will happen. Yes, climate change is the problem, not the end of the world. And then also recognizing that there are many other things that especially we could help the world's poor to do much better with. 
So again, it's a question of getting our priorities right and, and worrying about the right thing and doing what really works for the world. Yeah, that makes sense. And I was going to add in as a, as a joke, if anyone tries to burn your book, they're contributing carbon emissions. So don't do it. Read it. <laughs> yes, please read it. Excellent. Well, Bjorn, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I appreciate hey, it. Hey, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed the podcast, which has been sponsored by Echelon. When you're trying to reach your fitness goals, it can really help to have world-class instructors like Nicole Griffin and Michael Brown choreographing classes with music from your favorite artists like Pitbull. And you get a community of hundreds of thousands of people who can give you that extra push. Echelon gives you that. Echelon's certified fitness instructors are supportive, engaging, and fun. They really know how to get you moving. And right now, for a limited time, podcast listeners can get up to $800 off MSRP. To get this exclusive podcast discount, text GENIUS to 818181 to get $800 off MSRP. Once again, text GENIUS to 818181. Message and data rates may apply. Please see terms for details. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.